Hello and welcome to the First Stand Football Show. I am your host, Tobias Brown, and we've got a special episode for you guys here today. I am here with former Mount Union Purple Raider punter, Adam Snyder. Adam, to start us off, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, tell us about your career, some of your accolades, and then kind of get into what got you to Mount Union. How did you find them? How did they find you? Kind of give us some insight into that whole process. Well, first off, thank you for having me. Much appreciated. Uh, so I went to Liberty Union High School, which is in southeast Columbus area. Uh, coming out, I was primarily a safety receiver um, recruit with punting on the side. It was just an additional thing that I did in high school. High school, I did it, I think I started sophomore through senior year. So had some experience with game, but I never really focused in on, like, technique or anything out of that. So going on the recruiting trail, uh, Ashland and Youngstown State were interested Youngstown was more interested in punting. Uh, that kind of fell off when they signed a couple guys, so that didn't go. Uh, went up to Ashland, loved Ashland. And then Mount actually came on late, uh, sent my film up and everything, went and did, a, I think, a tour around campus around February, I believe, of my senior year, so very late in the recruiting. Most kids know where they're going junior year, uh, but traditional route. So Ashland, it was down between Ashland and Mount, and just the culture that I felt up at Mount, talking to the coaches, I did an overnight up at Mount. So that's what drew me to Mount more. Uh, I wasn't really on the narrative of the D3, D2 with the scholarships or anything like that. It's just the culture that was set already there, the championship standard, as I'm sure we'll talk about later. But uh, that's what drew me to Mount. Um, so, yeah. So speaking on that D3, two d3 culture obviously mount being d3 they couldn't give an athletic scholarship that seems to be a common misconception though if you go to a d3 school you're just you're screwed you're not going to get any financial help because they can't give you a scholarship can you speak a little bit to what the d3 schools can offer though that could potentially entice someone a lot of kids these days if they hear well my options are mount or heidelberg or well i could walk on it you know you know, Moorhead State or something, they may want to walk on at a smaller school so they could get a scholarship. Why would you push for a D3 school to still be at the top of the list? Well, first and foremost, I'll get to the financial part of it. Um, when you're on your recruiting trail, you have to find a place that fits you, somewhere that you're going to fit in and know you're going to enjoy it for four years. You don't want to go into it just because you got a scholarship or anything like that and just be another number and just be on campus and be miserable. With going to Mount, like I talked about my overnight, it, it just felt like home. It felt like a place I wanted to be at. And then with the financial part of it, I think the price tag when I went in my freshman year was 41000 and that was to start. And then after all the financial aid, scholarships from grades and ACT scores, I think it went all the way down to roughly, I think, eighteen five. So, I mean, half off right there just through financial aid and everything that offered out there. So it's really a, not that bad of a price tag once you get through the whole process. I know, you know, looking at the price tag to begin with can be very staggering and be like, I, why would I even go there when this is the price point? But most D3s, especially in the Ohio Athletic Conference and here in Ohio, all schools are like that. Until you get your financial aid, until you're accepted, you're going to just see that price tag. And speaking on a little bit of the football specifics, Mount Union, obviously, 
they're national title contenders pretty much every season. They, I believe you've won at least, what, one national title with them? Two national titles. We can't shortchange you on that one. So two national titles with Mount. Can you speak on, you know, a lot of people, obviously we watched, you know, when it was the BCS, we would watch Alabama. We still watch Alabama dominate. Can you speak on, though, what the competition level is like at that D3 level and touch on what it's like just to be a national champion? Yeah, so I'll, uh, I'll just go through the regular season with the OAC. Uh, we start off a non-conference every year. It's kind of difficult to get someone to – we get one non-conference game a year because we have 10 in the OAC. So uh, you traditionally it's hard to find a non-conference that wants to come play us. Um, you know, we roll out with someone mediocre usually. They want to have that experience playing against us to know where they want to get their program. Uh, and then going into the OAC, it kind of fluctuated through my four years there. Uh, the standard, uh, I can't even say their name, the team up in Cleveland, uh, and then Baldwin-Wallace were the traditional two that push us the most, our two rivals. Uh, it fluctuated between Heidelberg and Marietta, up and down, who was sitting at that four or five spot. But um, we, we didn't take that into mind when playing like Otterbein Capital. It was a normal work week for us. I think I give credit to our coaching staff a lot because on those weeks we had, I mean, competition after competition because we knew the opponent might not have been as good at us, but we knew we were prepping for the playoffs. And it's a 53-man roster, I believe, 56-man roster. So you have to secure your twos and threes to see, okay, this is where we're at. So week in and week out, we had competition. I mean, those twos and threes went at it nonstop and just – the fact that it was a 12-week season with that competition and them having to go through that to make that roster, brutal. And uh, going on the rest of the uh, competitiveness through the playoffs, it, it, we could start week one with a tough opponent or we could start week one with an opponent that barely squeaked by their conference that you know won an automatic bid. Uh, I would say traditionally round three is when we – saw our competition step up. Uh, that's when we knew it was go time. Like week three, four, national championship, we got to lock in. This, we, we're not playing just any schmuck anymore. We're playing very high competitive teams. Most definitely. And for those who don't know that team up in Cleveland, I'm going to hurt you here, but that is John Carroll. Um, John Carroll, no slouch of their own. They've produced several NFL coaches, most notably Josh McDaniels, head coach of the Raiders, Nick Cesario, who's the GM of the Texans, went to John Carroll. So for those of you who think the OAC or Division Three football in general is a slouch, I mean, can you speak a little bit to what Mount Union has produced and some of the talent you've seen there? Well, going off of what you said with John Carroll, I'll go ahead and say it, not being a slouch, the year that they beat us, uh, 2016, you know, Mount Union is the standard to go on. I mean, it's been set in stone for a while. But uh, the year that they beat us, both John Carroll and us went to the semifinals. I mean, that, that should show you the caliber of team John Carroll is. And, you know, when we're playing them, all respect is given to them because we know the caliber of team they are. So that's funny that you brought that up. Most definitely. And I think that just shows, you know, you talk about Texas football being the best or Florida football being the best. When you look at the quality that Ohio has, obviously it starts with Ohio State. And you look, though, at specifically the Division Three level and the OAC, I mean, John Carroll's been great. You know, you guys have produced 
Pierre Garcon, Cecil Shorts. Ohio Northern has even put a guy in the NFL with Scott Trusnick at linebacker. So several NFL players at that Division Three level. Can you speak a little bit to some of the guys you've played with or some of the guys you played against? Just big names that maybe we don't know enough about, but we should definitely familiarize ourselves with either their tape or if they're still going today, the type of talent they were. Uh, that's a that's a good question. Um, I can't really know anyone from the OAC off the top of my head. Uh, I do remember a he was a linebacker from uh, University of Mary Hardin Baylor down in Texas. I mean, he was a stud. I mean, just I mean, their whole roster is from Texas. When we played him the first time my sophomore year, their whole roster was from Texas, except for one guy from Oregon. I mean, it's just absurd how that realm is. And the same with what you were talking about with um, Ohio and recruiting and being up here. But uh, he got he got signed to a mini camp up in Cleveland, and he ended up making the practice squad. And he didn't even he wasn't even a linebacker. He got moved to safety. I mean, it, the versatile of that team down there. And I give them all the respect. Also, I just very talented team making it year in year out in the playoffs. Um, but I will say one of the guys that he didn't get a shot, but in my four years, one of the, uh, there's two of them. I'll just stay to one. Tyrese Scott, uh, he led Mount Union in receiving his junior year. I mean, just a phenomenal athlete. Switched to quarterback his senior year, my freshman year. Had the most touchdowns, most passing yards in all of Division Three. One of the most dual-threat quarterbacks I've seen in person ever. I mean, just what he could do with the ball, throwing, running, making defenders miss, make, being able to make every read possible. Tyree Scott was definitely one of the most elusive, dynamic athletes I've ever seen on a football field. And that's what I think a lot of people don't realize is D3, it's not just guys who weren't good enough to go play D1. Several of those guys either could have gone D1 or had been D1 at some point. D3 definitely offers a lot. I mean, I think specifically watched you guys play a couple times when you had D'Angelo at quarterback. Guy was no slouch. I mean, he he definitely could play football a little bit. I mean, I, I've, I've seen... I've seen what Akron has rolled out at quarterback, and I've seen D'Angelo, and I'm fairly confident D'Angelo could hold his own. If you could speak on that. Yeah, I mean, uh, so D'Angelo came – so I'll go back to Therese Scott because you kind of mentioned, you know, the athletes that roll in. So he was receiver. Before that, we had Kevin Burke, who was a two-time Gallardi Trophy winner, which in D3 is the Heisman, basically. So not only that, is he was pushing Kevin Burke from what I was told – that he almost started over Kevin Burke multiple times just because we have so many competitions week in and week out. But uh, going back to D'Angelo, uh, he came in with a good class of uh, three quarterbacks, Luke Poorman, um, Dom Davis, and himself. And he actually wasn't the day one starter. Uh, it was Luke Poorman came in and started. Uh, he played, I believe, six games for us and then had a rotator cuff injury where he just needed to be rested. And then – D'Angelo came in, he, um, I think he played two games and got hurt also, and then Don Davis came in. And so I go back to the competition all the time because, I mean, all three played. Don Davis ended up finishing out the season throughout the playoffs and regular season for us. But it just he had to compete that spring ball. I remember, I mean, they all three rotated. One practice, 
D'Angelo might be with the ones. The next practice, he's with the threes, just because of the competition level. And then he ended up coming out and winning the job in the fall. So that's where it came. Um, then we also got help from Justin Hill, who came in as a receiver, uh, receiver transfer from Gyro Preparatory School in Virginia. So a lot of people think Mount Union get all these transfers from D1s and anything, but I think in my four years there, we had two D1, three, three. Three D one transfers and one of them being a kicker, so it's not what everyone thinks Mount Union is getting all these transfers and everything. So I want to talk specifically about your position. Obviously, you punted primarily at Mount Union. Um, punters, you know, we make jokes about punters and kickers. We all think we could do it. Everybody is like, "Well, I could punt a football forty yards," and then they're, you know, it's time to put their money where their mouth is. They got to go out there and they shank it. Can you talk specifically? What was a week like for you with practice? But then also, can you speak specifically to you know, what was your averages? And also, how do you get to that point? Obviously, you said you played receiver and safety primarily and punted on the side. How did you develop it to where you're punting, not only at the collegiate level, but at the top of the Division three collegiate level? So um, when I came out as a freshman, I had a really good uh, kicking coach. He had just graduated the year before, uh, Ed Runke. He came in. He was a transfer from uh, Sacramento State, came in. So he, he really molded me to become a true punter and really helped me develop, you know, what I needed to fine tune. Uh, a normal week for me would be Mondays were very light uh, walkthroughs for the team, seeing the other teams' formations and everything. And then special teams would go out. We'll see what they're going to line up, what we think they're going to line up against us and everything. And, you know, who's back there returning? That, that was my biggest thing was knowing where the rush was coming from and the returner. Um, Tuesday was pretty heavy, special teams, you know, live, full go, uh, same Wednesday. And then Thursday was kind of our special – it was walkthroughs. We would do our two-minute drills, everything on the field. We were in um, shells, which is helmet and shoulder pads. So very light, but we did a lot of kicking th uh, Thursday just because we wanted to fine-tune our head coach at the time, um, Vince Karras. Huge on special teams. I mean, if we didn't run one of our calls Memphis outright, we would line it up and do it again. I mean, he was major on special teams wins games. So uh, Friday typically was a film day, so I got off. I didn't have film. So <laughs> yeah, And then Saturday we show up. Uh, we watch film in the morning if it's a home game. We walk uh, around campus as a team. That was one of the coolest traditions I found. You know, we'd all come in. Offense, defense, watch film first, special teams. And then we'd walk all the way around campus, head to the CAF, and then we would have team breakfast together. Then go back, watch uh, college game day, and head to the field for warm-ups. And that, that speaks to that family atmosphere. You know, people dog on special teams, but what they don't realize, guys like Bill Belichick got his start as a special teams coordinator in the 70s. John Harbaugh, the coach of the Ravens, he was a special teams coordinator until he got that head coaching job. Special teams is an essential part of football. Looking specifically at you with Mount Union, you guys didn't punt a lot. I mean, looking at your scores, I'm seeing 69 to zero. Um, we won't talk about what you did to Muskingum a couple times because, you know, we may eventually have some Muskingum listeners and we want to respect that. But looking at your guys' scores, you didn't punt a lot. So how do you stay mentally ready? Because, I mean, the tide of a game can change. Momentum can change on a blocked punt. You shank it, it only goes 20 yards. How do you stay mentally prepared when you may only get 10 to 15 snaps per game? Well, it's funny you bring that up about Muskingum because uh, I think in my four years I only punted four times once per game against them. So uh, it, it's tough, to be honest, because I could come out uh, pregame, have a really good warm-up, you know, 
be loose and everything. And then I could sit for the first two quarters and not be able to swing my leg or do anything, jog out onto the field. So the biggest thing was being able to just stretch and kind of kick in the net as much as possible. But with punters, like the follow through is different. So your foot almost goes in the net every time. Uh, but it's tough. Uh, you know, some games, like I remember my freshman year, we played uh, Capital at home. I didn't punt at all that game. I was ready, but you never got it. We convert on third down or something crazy happens. Uh, but it, it's tough because, you know, we're not receivers jogging in and off the field. We're not, you know, D linemen rotating in and out. We're, we're on the sideline. We're called in when it's our time. So, you know, you, you see it kind of my, – my judgment always was what's happening on second down. Is it second and six? I kind of trust our guys to get that. Second and longer, you know, I'm starting to get off the coat, sweatpants, whatever I have on for the day, get loose. Uh, third down, I'm, you can see it on film, national championship. I'm always by our head coach on third down. We're talking about where we're at in the field and everything like that. Um, but also going off the point of what you said about <laughs> not punting a whole lot, uh, I really didn't have a great average through college. I think my – Finished with a 36.9, which is god-awful compared to most out there. But you look at my attempts, I didn't have very many attempts either. And then if you look at my the rest of my stats, majority of them are inside the 20. So I had these chip shots when we would stall out at midfield, just making sure I didn't hit a touchback or anything, just set our defense, defense up for uh, the best possible situation for them to get us the ball back. And that's, I think, one thing people don't understand with punting. We want to look at net average, you know. You know, in the NFL, everybody's like, well, it needs to be at least 45. You know, I need to see something. Particularly, you know, you look at guys like Johnny Hecker. You want 46 to 48. Well, that's great if you're punting from your own 20. But if you're punting near midfield, you got to be able to directional, either angle it to where they're inside the 5, the 10, the 20. I don't want them getting a touchback every time. So can you speak to a little bit of the mechanics of how do you go about directional punting? How do you, you know, how does that look for you? What is important for a punter to be able to succeed at the next level? Yeah, so my freshman year, we uh, we only had one punt. It was a traditional straight-up punt. Uh, we're on the left side of the field. We're, you know, we're directioning it left. We're on the right side of the field. We're kicking it right. Uh, I hate the right side of the field. Uh, for those of you that don't know about like punting or anything like that, the ball comes off. If you're a right-footed punter, the ball comes off the right side of your foot. So the closer you are to that, most punters, when they shank one, goes to the right. So being closer to that right-handed side, it's a little terrifying because you know you got to hit a clean ball. But uh, when we went into my sophomore year, we actually changed our punting up a little bit. We had two calls, one Memphis, which was that traditional punt, which – we usually only did uh, left hash. I would punt left. And then we um, incorporated, we called it Reno, which was our rugby punt, which I had never done before. Uh, it, and it evolved from um, my sophomore year to my senior year. Sophomore year, I would roll out, you know, kick a kind of like a line drive, end over end kick, try to get it on the ground, roll around, so tough for the uh, returner to get. And then junior and senior year, I kind of got more comfortable with it where you know, I found out the sweet spot with dropping the ball where I was able to kick those spirals that you see, like, these Australians do when they roll out and drop with the nose down and everything. So came, became familiar with that. So it turned into the same style, Memphis and Reno, for me my junior, senior year, kicking spirals from both sides. But it was tough because comp- when you go for those rugbies, you know, you're kicking all the way across your body because your hips 
are aligned straight, but you're going to your right. So you're kicking across the body to get all your momentum into the ball. Where you're, when we were on the left, Memphis, I'm just lining up straight and kicking it down the field left. So for if there's any young punters out there with directional, the biggest advice I can give you is just get your hips lined up prior to the snap. You don't have to have your hips you know, straight with a snapper. You have your hips aligned to the numbers or something like that down the field. That way when you catch the ball, you are, are engaged with the direction you're going. And I want to talk a little more specifically about the punting before we cut you loose here. I got a couple questions about your Mount Union career as well. Obviously, we got to hear about those national championships. But looking at punters who have made it in the NFL recently, I look specifically at the Pittsburgh Steelers. They spent a draft pick last year on Presley Harvin out of Georgia Tech. He struggled a little bit this year. He's got a massive leg. But one thing you hear about is hang time a lot with punts. Can you give us a little insight as to what exactly that means and why is it so important versus it's great that you bombed it, you know, 60 yards, but if it was a straight line, why do we need that hang time on the punt as well? So before the hang time, I think the biggest thing that comes in the factor is your drop. Uh, most of people that don't know about punters or anything, the drop's the most important thing about the punt. If that ball turns inside or it's outside your foot, you're not going to hit it clean. You're going to see a wobble. The the ball has to drop perfectly down. And when I say that is when you release the ball and before it gets to your foot, it floats straight down. You don't see that ball tilt down, tilt up, tilt inside, outside, or anything like that. That's the key to a big hang time, to get that perfect spiral. And traditionally, the way you look at hang time, 40-yard, um, 4-0. So that means you're punting it 40 yards with a four-second hang time. And then if you get past that, you're looking at a four a 50-yard bomb with about a 4-8 hang time. And the biggest part about that is you're leaving that ball up in the air as long as possible to let your gunners get down and surround the returner trying to get a fair catch. Uh, you know, if you hit a 50-yard ball with four seconds, that's great. You bombed it downfield. That's further for your gunners to get there. That means, you know, that re returner is catching that ball and has a couple steps on your returners who are running full go, and he can make one cut and get around because his momentum's not going one way. So that's the biggest thing is the drop to the hang time, I think. And um, when you get to the big balls like the NFL guys, like I just watched the uh, San Diego State punter in the draft. I mean, just beautiful balls. And you can see his hang time correlates with his distance. That's the biggest thing when you look at these big ball punters is you got to have that hang time with the distance. If you have the distance but no hang time, you're not going to be very successful because you can take put that returner back there 70 yards, but it, your gunners are 20 yards away from when he catches it. I mean, you're losing that net that you were talking about, which Coach Karras is huge about net. He, Yes, he granted he loved to see my average, but net is the genuine most important thing when you're looking at punt stats. So being able to correlate your distance with hang time, it, it's massive. And I want to look specifically at your Mount Union career. Obviously, two-time national champ. There has to be some fond memories there. Um, you don't just win national titles and, you know, brush that off. It's not every day you get the opportunity to do that. Can you speak on maybe what is your greatest memory at Mount Union and just tell us a little bit about that? Uh, I kind of have two. Um, them both being – well, one being in the national championship and two being in uh, playing against Baldwin Wallace, which I talked about was one of our rivals. Um, it was our head coach's main rival. John Carroll wasn't at the level they were at now when he played. So it was the th start of the third quarter. 
and our drive stalled at our own 40 and our head coach calls a fake and we're all like what what like why are we showing this on film i think it was week three maybe we're like why are we showing this on film this early and he did not care <laughs> we ran uh danny robinson he was my uh one of my up backs because we had three we did a three bear punt rent right out five yard out hit him 30 yards i mean it, it was just kind of cool they didn't see it coming it was baldwin wallace so that was that was a cool memory uh second being in the stag bowl the national championship my junior year uh just it was i think 25 to 30 mile an hour winds uh terrible conditions <laughs> uh and but i think i only had a couple punts with the wind but majority were against and they had a returner that year i can't think of his name but uh he had 11 kickoff returns and punt returns for a touchdown that year so you don't see that you see that in maybe a four-year career maybe that i mean that number's high let alone he had that in his own year uh, so big on directional like you were talking about earlier and I, I just had this one massive, I, I think it was close to 50-yard bomb. He, he, you know, punting in the wind, he was up probably only 30 yards from the line of scrimmage. Like, that's how bad the wind was. I bonded over him. My gunner, Nick Brish, who went on to win the MVP, I mean, just trailed him. I mean, he had to turn around and run back 20 yards and catch it over his shoulder. And then my gunner, Nick Brish, just leveled him. And it was, it was just cool to see because didn't give me the respect I needed for that and just to be able to put it over his head. So – I think that was one of my favorite memories. And for people who don't know, the Stag Bowl is definitely, you know, we see the national championship, we see Super Bowls, we see all that on TV. The Stag Bowl is an environment in and of itself that if you've not watched it, it's definitely worth tuning into. Can you tell us a little bit, uh, just give us a little insight into what that D3 level of the Stag Bowl is like so we can maybe appreciate it a little more? Yeah, so it was a pretty cool experience. It's a little hectic to start the week, to be honest, because uh, every year that I played, we went to three national championships, one, two. So every week somehow, or every year somehow, it fell on finals week. So we had a, we always left Tuesday around like 11. So we had to get all of our finals done Monday and Tuesday. So that means, because we never knew, you know, if you're going to win or lose. Always we plan to win, succeed. We do a chant countdown from 15 after every win because we're playing 15 games every year. That's our standard. So we never know. And then, boom, Saturday we win. Oh, crap. We have to cram our studying in for these finals. <laughs> so that's how the week starts. And then once uh, we leave Tuesday, you know, it's kind of a relief. All that's done. You don't have to worry about this stuff. And that's another thing. We we do all of our studies at D3. <laughs> but uh, so get that done. Tuesday we leave. We get down um, pretty late. Uh, my two years that I went, freshman and junior year, is down in Virginia. So we'd get down there pretty late. Uh, Wednesday we'd wake up. We'd have film, breakfast as a team. And then we would head to Salem High School, get a lift in, and then we'd go to practice. And it's very surreal for most guys that hadn't been there for the first time. You, you walk onto that field, you, you know, you see the Orange Bowl, the Rose Bowl, how it's all painted and dolled up and everything. So walking on that field and seeing it painted for the Stag Bowl, seeing your, your university in the end zone, seeing that Mount Union just laid out, it's a very surreal moment, and it, it puts you in awe. So the coaches usually let us, you know, walk around the field for 30 minutes, let it, you know, sink in. 
and then we'd practice Thursday, normal practice, and then uh, Friday was the game because it was short and weak, so we didn't really have an off day. So Thursday we still practiced, not full go. Um, also, <laughs> we only had 53, so I always played a scout team outside linebacker throughout the whole week. So that was always a fun memory, you know, getting to run around, get the offense ready, prepared, um, maybe make an interception here and there, who knows, on the starting quarterback. But uh, uh, get to Friday. Stag Bowl is always on a Friday because um, the Stag Bowl – they don't like to say it, but it starts the bowl season. It's always the first bowl of the year. After that is the D2 the next day with D1, like the lower bowl start. Um, and then once you get – when you wake up Friday, you, you, you're anxious all day because it's a 7 o'clock kickoff, but you have to wait all day. So you don't know what to do with yourself. Uh, I was lucky to room with my long snapper both years, and, you know, we just talked about everything throughout the day play the Xbox, try to get our heads off of it, but that didn't work. But uh, you get to the field, and obviously punters, kickers are out there first. So you have the whole field to yourself. And just another moment, because the lights are on now. Like, you're in awe, but you you know it's time to lock it in. It, it's go time, and you're trying to put on that best performance as possible. So it, it's very surreal. We do a – I forgot, we do a banquet uh, – Thursday night with the other team, so that's always interesting. Everyone's sizing each other up, what they see on film compared to what you are in person. For me, I didn't really do that. I was there to have fun. I, I'm not gonna go out bang heads with anyone unless they somehow break free. Like he did, actually, he did return one on me my junior year. Uh, he got called back because they roughed me in the end zone, but we don't talk about that. But uh, but it's a very cool experience. Uh, they do it right for the Division three level. They do everything possible to make it an experience you're going to remember for a lifetime. And before I let you go, last question, we thank you for coming on the show today, but I want to ask you if you could give any advice to a high schooler right now, you know, it doesn't matter what level they're being recruited, but if you could give them any advice in the recruiting process and the next step and just in life after football as well, what would you give for advice to a high school football player right now? You definitely need to find your passion first. Um, if you know that you're passionate about kicking or punting or anything like that, and I, I hate to say it, but it's true, you have to go to camps. That's the only way you're going to get recognized early because for kicking and punting, those scholarships tend to go early because at most times these kids are know they're going to be kickers and punters, 7th, 8th graders. In some states, 8th graders play on the varsity team. So the really get behind the ball, if you like realize junior and senior year, like, oh, I want to do this, well, most of the scholarships are taken. You know, it, if you come on late, don't dismiss a D3, NAIA, anything like that. Find a place that fits you. You know, if you're passionate about kicking, there's going to be a place to take you. No matter what level you're at, uh, D3, D2, NAIA, FBS, FCS, you're, you'll find somewhere. I would just advise to start early with some camps. Um, you know, Cole's kicking camp, bigger camps, or even just go to team camps. If they're having that for, say, offense receiver, offense for receivers, quarterbacks, just email and be like, hey, can I come this day and do a small kicking trial for you or anything like that? You know, you never know what coaches are going to say. You never know if kickers are going in transfer portal now. That's a, that's a big thing. Like, kickers are going to get to somewhere and not start freshman year in the transfer. So they're going to have a spot open. So just go to camps. Just try to get your name out as much as possible. And your second question was life beyond football. Um, I thank Mount Union a lot for this because 
now I'm coaching high school football. I came my first year out of college. I coached middle school, defensive coach. Then I was the head middle school coach. And the biggest thing I took away from Mount Union is just in those films that I had to be in that didn't pertain to me, but special teams was next, learn as much as you can. Because you never know later in college like or in life when that's going to come up. For me, went into coaching. Biggest thing I learned from Mount Union, and we have an extensive coaching tree throughout, like Dom Capers, I mean, historic NFL coaching career, uh, was players to formation of plays. What that means is every year you're not going to have the same team. Other than NFL, they have a few switches. High school and college, players come in and out every year. You never know who you're going to have. So you have to look at your roster every year. From that, you're not going to use the formations you had last year because you don't have the same skill base. So you have to adjust your formations to that, and then from that, you create your playbook for that year. And it's a tradition and something that you see at Mount Union playing there. I think we ran three different defenses because one year we ran a 4-3 because we had a stout D-line. The next year we had a stout linebacker core, so we ran a 3-4. And it's just something that I've learned and taken into my life um, Another thing that really (laughs) inspired me was the work ethic from the coaches and all the players, you know. It doesn't happen overnight to be a national champion. It, You know, I remember my freshman year, we had a 4 a.m. practice, and it had snowed seven inches that night. Did we clear the snow? Nope, but we had practice. Did it matter? No, because we had to practice to get better. So just having that mindset to get better each and every day and, you know, not slacking because, yeah, we're national champions. So what? We, we can put it on cruise for the spring? No, because we want to win more. So just seeing that work ethic and everything and learning uh, play, players' formation plays, I mean, it was life-changing. Most definitely. We thank you for coming on today. Like I said, folks, that was former Mount Union Purple Raider punter Adam Snyder. I always tell you guys, rate, subscribe, and review to the podcast. We'll be back later this week with our NFC offseason team needs. But until then, we'll see you guys later. Have a good one.